This morning we're in the Gospel of Luke once again. You can see it on the page 8 of your bulletin, Luke chapter 9. And as we work our way into that, you young Christians who are still with us this morning, let me ask you all a question. Do you all ever have arguments with your siblings? Yes, I imagine you do. I'm sure that you have. Uh, You've had some reason to argue with your siblings. Do you know that grown-ups argue too? Even the disciples of Jesus argue, and the Bible shows us one of those arguments right here in Luke chapter 9. I want you to see and watch how Jesus responds to their arguments. This is Luke 9, beginning in verse 46. An argument arose among them, that is the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God stand forever. Father, help us to believe. Help us to recognize and see your good news. Help us to understand, we pray. Help us to understand even the intricacies of your redemptive history as you've woven it together through the narrative of this world in which we live. You continue to weave it together even through our own lives right here in this theater. And we pray that you would help us to see that. Help us to recognize the story in which you've given us to live. The story in which you have redeemed us through the blood of Christ. Help us to believe that, we pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. I am not personally a fan of role-playing A friend of mine told me about a a Sunday school church class that he's been attending about on the topic of discipleship, and a professor is coming to teach this class, and the professor's, one of his chosen methods of teaching is role-playing, and so it's on the subject of discipleship. So every now and then, well, every class, at some point during the class, the professor will say to the class, okay, it's time to put on your disciple hat and they all will begin to play a role. I don't know exactly how they do it, if they, they act it out in some way, some narrative portion of Scripture perhaps. But, you know, one of them is John, one is Andrew, one is Philip, one is Bartholomew, and so on. They each put on their disciple hat, literally, and they play their role. Now, for some people, that's really helpful. Some, for some people, that's a good way to learn, and I, I respect that. I appreciate it. Not for me. I'm not much of an actor. So I don't prefer role-playing in that way. It seems to me more suitable for comedy than for learning. And so it actually makes me think of, of that uh, game show, kind of an improv comedy show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Maybe you've seen that show. I think it had an earlier run with Drew Carey as the, 
the host, and now it's running with someone else as the host. I've not seen the more modern version of it, but it's an improv comedy show in which the host gives to the four comedians on the stage a scenario, a situation in which they are to role play. They're to act as comedians, and it's, it's a contest of sorts. So sometimes they'll come up with a dating game, and one of the comedians will be assigned the role of the bachelorette, and so he's supposed to play the role of the bachelorette. The other three are to play the roles of the bachelors, and they each are secretively given a specific role to play. And the bachelorette comedian has the challenge of determining exactly what their role is that they're playing. And so bachelor number one is a game show host, and so he'll speak like a game show host. He'll answer the questions like a game show host would do. Bachelor number two is the world's greatest glutton. And so he'll answer all the questions accordingly. And bachelor number three is a talking chicken laying eggs. And so the bachelorette is supposed to follow their cues and figure out exactly what is this role that they are playing. And it really is quite funny. A disciple of Jesus has roles to play. But it's not fun in games. It's not fun in games at all. Because if the Spirit of God is at work in a person, then the roles that a disciple is to play are not so much play as they are a way of life. So chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, I've mentioned before to you in these past weeks, is a very pivotal chapter in this gospel account. For most of these nine chapters up to now, Jesus has been concerned through Luke's writing to answer the question, who am I? Who is this man Jesus who is before you doing these marvelous things and saying these striking teachings. Who am I? But now that answer has that question has been answered by the disciples. Now they have acknowledged that, that He is the Son of God. They recognize He's the Messiah. He's the one that God has sent. And now the question changes. What will it mean for you to be my disciples? What will it mean for you to be my disciples? Most of Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel up to this point has been in Galilee, in the northern region of Israel, around that great lake in the northern part of the country. But now he begins to turn south, and Luke is going to spend about the next ten chapters covering this journey south towards Jerusalem. It's what some studying the Bible would call the travel narrative of Luke's gospel, these next ten chapters. And Jesus is saying in these narratives... If you are to be my disciples, then here are your roles that will shape your life. And since the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, Jesus begins by redefining greatness in saying that one role for a disciple is to be a servant, a servant of the least. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. Now you have to know that this argument that arose among the disciples is going to arise again at the Last Supper On the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry, still at that late point, these 12 will be arguing about who's the greatest. And so it doesn't get resolved here despite Jesus' creative object lesson. 
Who is the greatest? You know, if, if you ever wonder, and I imagine you do, if you ever wonder about the veracity of the Bible, is it really a true historical account of things? How can I know that? There are some ways to know that, and one of those is by seeing a narrative like this one. One of those is by recognizing that the writers of Scripture portray the heroes of the story in ridiculous ways. They don't try to hide their dirty laundry, as it were. They don't try to smooth things over and make it look like they always knew what they were talking about. The writers of Scripture show you what actually happened. And in doing so, they show you how juvenile even these heroes of the Scriptures were at times. Who is among us the greatest? I'm better than you are. No, no, no. I'm better than you are. Greatness. I mean, it's something that we debate all the time. We wonder who's the greatest player, who's the greatest actress, who's the greatest celebrity, who's the greatest leader, what's the greatest food, what's the greatest car on the road, and, of course, what was the greatest 1970s record album cover? You know, we wonder what's the greatest in all kinds of categories. It's, it's a question that we are curious about because we admire, admire what's great, and we long to be great. You know, to be honest, that's not always a bad thing to long for. I mean, a parent of a child knows the feeling at some point along the way when their little child says, Mom, you're the greatest. Dad, you're the greatest. And that begins to carry a little more weight when they grow older, and they still might say that at some point along the way. Or, Miss Teacher, you're the greatest teacher in the school. You know, those sorts of things. It's good to aspire to that and to hear those words and to be encouraged. Sometimes it's really good to be called the greatest. And yet, this is not just a superficial debate. Luke tells us that Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. As he heard this argument unfolding, he knew the reasoning of their hearts. Isn't that interesting? You know, do you reason in your mind? Or do you reason in your heart? Scripture will tell you that whatever reasoning takes place in your mind originated in your heart. It came from down deep. And that's what Jesus recognizes here. In your heart, you long to be great. It's such a temptation to long and to lust even for a role of greatness. The Apostle John, right here in this passage, he, he raises a complaint, or maybe it's a confession perhaps in Verse 49, he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. Jesus said, don't do that. What was John saying? He was saying, look, somebody else is having kingdom success. In your name, Jesus, they're doing these things and they're succeeding. Apparently, this one, whoever it was, was gathering some acclaim and attention among the people. Acclaim and attention that the disciples themselves weren't getting. And John, in a sense, maybe is, is saying, look, this guy, he's, he's stealing our greatness. But a disciple of Jesus plays a different role. Greatness is tempting. But grace is serving. Serving of the least. Whoever would be greatest among you must be a servant of all. And so Jesus offers an object lesson here. He he draws a child 
to him among them. In our culture, we love children, and so this doesn't seem odd to us. You know, we dote over children, and we think they're so cute and precious as they are. But in this first century culture, that wasn't quite the case. In the culture of Jesus' day, a child under the, the age of 12 years was considered to be, by grown men at least, a waste of time. They weren't yet old enough to be valuable. In fact, it was written in, in one of the teachings of the day that there are four things that will destroy a man. Morning sleep, midday wine, hanging out with the common people, and chattering with a child. That was the thought of the day. And so when somebody tried to bring children to Jesus, the disciples' natural response was to say, no, 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 keep the kids away. He doesn't have time. The teacher doesn't have time for the children. That was their natural response conditioned by their culture. But Jesus insists, he says, my disciples must be great like this child is great. And so who is great? The one who makes himself nothing. The one who associates himself with the lowly. The one who is a servant of the least. I mean, it's such a a well-known idea this is among Christians that it's really kind of become a platitude among us that doesn't mean a whole lot. You know, we think of Mother Teresa. Oh, well, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, India. She was the servant of the least, and she is the model of servanthood and Wouldn't it be nice for people to be like her? It almost becomes like a platitude to be like Mother Teresa. So why is this a gospel requirement for disciples? Why is it a gospel requirement for disciples that they be a servant of the least? Because it was a divine requirement for the gospel in the first place. You know, it's exactly what Jesus himself did for us. Though he was in the form of God, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. The incarnation of Christ remains and always will be one of the most remarkable truths of Christianity. It is one of a number of truths of Christianity that completely sets it apart from any other religion on the face of this earth, from any man-made religion. The fact that God the eternal creator of the universe, the one by whom the Father set all things into being. The eternal Son of God himself took on flesh and became a man to walk among us in this world to endure the pains and trials of this world. That God became a man in the incarnation is a remarkable truth of Christianity. And what does that say about who is the least? We are. Every one of us is the least. You know, if if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you are, because of the work of His Spirit in your heart, in your soul, you are looking for ways to serve the least. Now, this is the point in a sermon on this text when a minister is tempted to use guilt to manipulate his congregation. And a lot of times, our temptation would be to use what you might call the nursery test. You know, you who serve in the nursery, you're the ones who are serving the least. But if you're not serving in the nursery, well... And I began to realize, as I thought about that, I'm I'm tempted to do stupid things too. 
And I began to think, I kind of began to survey and do the numbers, and I realized that fully 75% of the adults in our congregation serve in the nursery or worship training classrooms. 75%. That was no surprise to me because, well, I mean, every new members class realizes that you're conscripted into service. But even among you 25% who are not currently serving, I am also fully aware that your reasons for not currently serving are a number of reasons. Maybe that because of your age and physical condition, you're unable to at this time, and everyone understands and realizes that's true. It may be that you're taking a break from having served for 10 years straight in the nursery and worship training classes, and you've got a well-deserved break. For a time, and your numbers aren't needed back there anyway for the moment. And it may be that it's because you are so engaged in serving the least among us out in the city of Dallas. In some way or another, all of you, as I think about it, are serving the least among us. And that is a really remarkable beauty of this congregation. It really, it really, really is. You know, there, there are some Christians out there, some professing Christians who would say, I don't hold other people's babies. I just don't do that. There are some out there who would say, I don't feed the homeless. I'm just not comfortable with that. There are some out there who would say, I don't, I don't do visiting of the sick. I just don't do that. I'm not into germs. And so, you know, I don't do that. There are lots of people who would say those sorts of things. But you in this congregation don't tend to say those things because you realize the hopeless state that you would be in if Jesus had said, I don't do incarnations. If Jesus had said, I don't do resurrections, he could have said that. If Jesus had simply said, I don't do those sorts of things, where would we be? A disciple of Jesus is the servant of the least. And that suggests then another role for us to take, a harder one even. The Son of Man comes not to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is, he comes to intercede. And so a second role of a disciple of Jesus is to be an intercessor for the worst. So what is an intercessor? The one who intercedes is a person who intervenes, who goes between two parties, especially with prayer, but there are other tangible ways to intercede. So what happens here in this passage before us? Verse 51, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now stop right there. Who are the Samaritans? Do you know? Do you know who the Samaritans are? I mean, they are, you may know, the people who live in the region between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. There's a region. It's kind of a hill country north of Jerusalem, south of the Sea of Galilee. The people who live in that region, they're Samaritans. But we think of Samaritans, and we're kind of conditioned by the, the, the famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're, we're tended to, we tend to condition ourselves to think that Samaritans are the good ones out there. They're the good people out there, right? Well, who were these people really? In 2 Kings 17, you can read about them. 
In 2 Kings 17, you recognize that in the year 722 B.C., the king of Assyria, having, having conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, otherwise known as Samaria because that was the name of its capital, the king of Assyria, having conquered that land, exiled its people, took its people out and took them away to Assyria, but he didn't want to leave the land empty of people, and so he repopulated it with his own people, scattered about from other nations that he had conquered, including Babylon. He took people from those places and he occupied Samaria with those people. And generations later, when Ezra and Nehemiah and others led the return of the Israelites to their land, the Samaritans were there and tensions ran high. And over the course of 700 years, the sociology of the region was complicated But basically, these people that Jesus and his disciples meet who reject them are these Samaritans. They're the descendants of those people. These are the immigrants, and they are not welcome. They're on Israelite land. And so in Jesus' day, there was tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. That's why the parable of the Good Samaritan would be so striking to a Jew. That, that parable, as, as much as we love that parable, that parable was probably the most hated parable among the Jews. Well, one of many hated parables probably among the Jews because the Jews would have replied, even his disciples would have said, Jesus, good, good Samaritan, there's no such thing. Jesus, what are you talking about? Those are the worst people that we can imagine. And so what happened when Jesus tried to pass through? Verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. They rejected Jesus and his disciples. And what did the disciples want to do? James and John, what did they want to do? Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? They want to judge. I mean, they are ready at the blink of an eye to judge these Samaritans, to judge these immigrants, as it were. And can you blame them? I mean, the Samaritans had occupied their land. The Samaritans had watered down their religion. The Samaritans had taken their jobs. The Samaritans had imposed travel restrictions in their own land. Lord, shall we call down fire on these people? I mean, these two disciples even think that they know a precedent for their policy because they know that 800 years prior, Elijah, the great prophet, had sat on a hilltop calling down fire on the military detachment that the king of Samaria, who was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, had sent to Elijah. And so, you know, here James and John, they probably know their Old Testament scriptures and they're realizing Elijah did that to the Samaritans, Lord Maybe we should do the same. But it's not the same. It's not the same circumstance. And so Jesus turned and rebuked them. We don't know how he rebuked them exactly. We're not told. I I wish, I so wish. There's so many little details in Scripture I wish were filled in more. I mean, don't you know it? Don't you imagine, you know, maybe he rebuked them without a word. Maybe he just turned and gave them that look. And I expect that Jesus had that look. Don't you think? Because as soon as they saw that look, they knew, zip it. Don't you know? Or maybe he turned and rebuked them with one word. Enough. 
That was a rebuke he used sometimes. Maybe he had more words to say, perhaps. You guys know better than this. You've heard me say what we're doing. Stop. Maybe he had some other words. We don't know how he rebuked them exactly, because what's he going to do? He's not going to judge, but rather intercede. He's going to intercede for these Samaritans. I mean, redemptive history has pointed to this all along. Abraham, in Genesis 18, famous story. Abraham is interceding before God for the city of Sodom. I mean, if ever there was a worst in the history of the human race, it was Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And there, Abraham, knowing that his nephew is there in that place, is going to rescue his nephew, the Lord is going to... Destroy that city which has earned it, earned the judgment of God. And Abraham intercedes. He says, Lord, what if there are 50 righteous people in that city? Would you destroy the city for 50 righteous people? And the Lord says, okay, Abraham, I'll relent for 50. Abraham begins to bargain. What about 45, Lord? What if there are 45 there? The Lord says, okay, 45. What about 40? What about 30? What about 20, Lord? What about 10 people in that city? Are there 10 righteous people? Would you spare the city for them? The Lord said, okay, Abraham, I'll spare the city for 10. There weren't 10. Abraham interceded for those people. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses reminds the Israelites, they're on the verge of entering the promised land, and Moses wants to remind them of some of their their history. And he explains to them that as you prepare to take this promised land, remember it's not because of your righteousness that you're here. It's because of God's grace that you are here. And he reminds them of two occasions. He says, do you remember that time at the foot of the mountain when you fashioned a golden calf to worship because you grew impatient with me up on the mountain waiting for me to come down? And you worshiped a golden calf there and the Lord God was ready to destroy you all. And I laid prostrate before God for 40 days and 40 nights with no food or drink, interceding before you, and God relented. And the second occasion was this, when when we sent scouts up into the promised land and they came back with a mixed report. Some saying we could take the land, some saying we couldn't, and you refused to believe that good news, and you refused to go and follow God's command to take the land, You rebelled against him, and God was ready to destroy you. And so for 40 days and 40 nights, I laid prostrate before the Lord God on your behalf with no food or drink and interceded before God for you, and God relented. And now a greater Abraham, a greater Moses is prepared to lay himself prostrate before the Father to intercede for the worst. Not just for Samaritans, but for the Jews themselves. And God the Father would relent. Now, I know that you, like me, have felt the urge of these disciples. You can, you can empathize with their urge at this moment because you felt the urge to judge. You know, you who, who consider yourselves to be conservative, you've, you've seen what you would call immorality on the other side of the, of the proverbial aisle, and you've wanted to to judge it, to call it out in judgment. And you who consider yourselves to be maybe a little more liberal, 
have looked across the aisle and you've seen what you would consider to be selfishness and you've wanted to call out in judgment and cast fire down on the other side. You know, it is imperative always to call sin what it is. That's important for us as disciples of Jesus, to be able to recognize and to call sin what it is. But beware of the posture from which you do it. It is not your role to judge. It's your role to intercede, even for the worst. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Those are words Jesus said that probably got a mixed reaction, don't you think? I mean, he he may as well have been telling Iraqi Christians to pray for the ISIS terrorists that roll into their towns and behead their men and boys. That's exactly what he was telling them to do. To pray for those who persecute you. I mean, it's so common to see Christians in our day casting judgment on sinners as though it were really theirs to cast. But if, if the church is to win the city for Christ, then that must not be. Jesus would enter Jerusalem expecting rejection. You know the story. Expecting rejection, fully knowing that that rejection was coming. But he did not enter the city with judgment on his lips. He entered the city with tears in his eyes, weeping for that city. Jesus would hang on the cross feeling the weight of the persecution that he had endured for that whole day and a half. But there was no judgment on his lips, rather a prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And even Stephen, the disciple, would know days later the bone-breaking strikes of being stoned to death. But there was no judgment on his lips. Do you know what Stephen's last words were? Lord, Don't hold this sin against them. How could he pray that? How could he do that? I mean, do you pray with compassion for your persecutor at work? Do you pray with compassion for the bully in the hallways at school? Do you pray with compassion for the civic leader that you want so desperately to hate? Jesus came to intercede for you. So, thus must a disciple do. Which means there's a third role. And the third role is this. A disciple must play the role of a follower unto death. A follower unto death. Now the disciples have been following Jesus for some time now. They've been following through the villages of Galilee and across the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And they've been following him up and down hills and mountains. But still at this point, they're not entirely sure of just where he's leading them to go. Until Luke makes it clear to us, at least, in verse 51, which is such a pivotal verse. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He resolutely set his face. He set his face like flint. Whatever sort of metaphor you want to put there, Luke's point is, Jesus, at this point, recognized there was no turning back. This was not going to be some sightseeing tour of the old city. This was not going to be some joy ride. Rather, from the eternally ancient annals of the decreed will of the Father before the beginning of time, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God Himself, 
would go unto his mortal death at Jerusalem. That's why Luke wants us to recognize the intention of Jesus in turning in this direction. It would be a death to which all of his disciples must follow. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that well-known, famous, even Lutheran pastor from World War II Germany days. A pastor who was actually safe in the United States at one point during that war. He could have stayed here and, and remained in the safety of this country during the war until it was all over. But he chose instead to return to Germany despite the threats of the Third Reich against people such as himself. Luther said, Bonhoeffer said, uh, I, I have to go back. He said, he said, the good shepherd does not abandon the sheep during his, their darkest hour. And so I, as an under-shepherd, cannot abandon the sheep of Germany in their darkest hour. And so he returned and he went on to say, when God calls a man to follow, he bids him come and die. As Bonhoeffer did, being hung for treason outside Berlin. You know, the 12 disciples, they all died on account of that discipleship that they claimed. On account of the roles that they played, they all died because of it. Paul and Peter, Andrew, Thomas, Philip, all of them. They all died. They all faced death at the hands of men in some way. John was the one that we know at least died of old age, but he died in prison. All of them died at the hands of men because of the discipleship that they claimed. These were all dramatic bodily deaths that, that no one would want. And most disciples will not face. But there's a greater death that comes first. And no disciple of Jesus will escape it. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I have died because I am a disciple of Jesus. Jesus rebuked James and John for wanting to call down fire on the Samaritans because unbeknownst to them, fire of judgment was indeed going to come down from heaven. But it was going to come down on him. In our place, in our overachiever culture, you know, everybody wants to be a leader. Everybody's supposed to have a resume that shows the ways in which you lead because you're the leader. You're the next great leader. Everybody's got to be the leader. But you will lead nowhere unless you follow Jesus unto death. William Whiting Borden is a name you may not know. He was one of the most influential missionaries of the early 20th century. One missionary who never actually made it to his desired field of service, interestingly. He was born in 1887 to a wealthy Chicago family. His father had made a fortune in silver mining. And so William was born into a fortune. And he became a Christian as a child and, and, and became very zealous for the gospel, being Grateful for the material provision of his parents, he determined early on that those things would not shape him, and so he took a bit of a different course. He was a very natural leader, and he drew hundreds of fellow Yale University students to his Bible studies on campus while he was a student there. Hundreds of students would come to his Bible studies, and he founded a homeless mission, even as a student, near the 
the college campus and funded it with his own fortune. And when he graduated from Yale, he turned down lucrative job offers in order to attend seminary to pursue ministry. And after seminary, he wanted to serve the least. And he learned that there were 15 million Chinese Muslims in central China with no gospel witness at all. And he determined and devoted himself to attain a call from the China Inland Mission to go there to serve those people. He wanted to intercede for the worst that he could imagine. In 1912, he traveled to Cairo, Egypt, where he would learn Arabic for a year or so. And as he traveled there, a Chicago paper following his prominent family posted the headline, Millionaire Gives Up All. And he traveled to Cairo. There he lived with a Syrian family. And he organized, in just his first weeks there, a scripture distribution system for the city. Three months into his stay in Cairo, he came down with spinal meningitis and he died. He never got to China. And there he was buried. His will of his fortune distributed all of his money to pushing missions into China. And all that was left for him was enough to pay for a concrete tombstone over his grave on which is engraved these words, Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for a life such as this. And that's true. No one would do what he did. There would be no reason to do what he did apart from Christ so also the roles of a disciple. There is no point, there is no explanation for taking on the roles of a disciple apart from the reality of the gospel because those roles take your very life. So are you great as the world calls great? Or do you serve the least? Do you judge as the world judges? Or do you intercede for the worst? Are you a leader? as the world calls leaders, or are you rather a follower unto death? If Jesus has given you faith to believe his gospel, then these are your roles. May you fulfill them with the strength that he provides. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you would help us to have the strength to do these very things, to follow after you, as those who serve and who intercede, even as you have done for us, Lord, would you cause us to have faith to believe, to recognize the truth of your gospel, and to honor you for it by giving our very lives. We pray and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.